Hey, up, Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm discussing 603 Temperance. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sass Snack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Season 7, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 6, Episode 3, Temperance. This episode was actually a really great episode. I think it makes the top half of my season six ratings. I'm not going to hold firm on that because I'm not 100% sure I'm going to need to finish the rest of the season to get you an accurate rating, I feel like, but I really definitely love it. It had a lot of really good themes, a lot of opportunities for some great character growth and to show off some fantastic acting chops. There are a couple of major things that happen in this episode, but I want to start off with a couple of the little things. So one thing that I absolutely love about this show, it's a choice by the writers that I'm actually very fond of, is for there to actually be a relationship between Brie and Marsily. I adore that because it's something that could have so easily been made into an adversarial catty relationship. And instead, we have this fantastic sisterly bond between the two. And we see that expressed in such little ways, whether it's a conversation between the two about their children, whether it's that scene that we got in season five, where Marsily tells Brianna about her abusive father, or this scene in this episode, where Brianna, seeing how much Marsley has been struggling with her spinning and how much time it takes out of her day, has made Marsley a spinning wheel with a pedal so that she can get her spinning done faster and have more time for the kids. It's these really thoughtful little scenes, and we get a couple more of them over the course of the next couple of episodes, but it really is just such a good bond. I love seeing it. Another little thing that I really actually liked about this episode was the developing relationship between Ian and Malva. It's kind of one of those things that you're not really sure where they're going with it. And I honestly don't care. (laughs) As a viewer, I love watching Ian be flirty with somebody. And it's not love or a romantic relationship, but he is definitely drawn to Malva and vice versa. And I think that that all starts with the fact that she has a fire inside her that most girls don't have, I think, at that point in time in history. Ian has grown up around very strong women. His mother, Jenny, his Auntie Claire, all of his sisters have this fiery way about them. I think naturally he's drawn to that kind of person. Malva is really just coming into her own as far as embracing this side of her nature. I think Claire is really bringing that out in her, her fiery, independent streak. She's extremely smart. I think she's sensitive. And her sense of humor kind of surprises Ian. But there's a couple of times in this episode where it's mentioned. The one that comes to mind is when she says, my brother says you're a good hunter. And he's like, well, it keeps me well fed. And she was like, well, that's kind of what I told my father when he asked me how to avoid the fiery pits of hell. She said, 
eat well, and take care not to die. <laughs> I love that. I could just imagine Malva telling Tom that as a young girl. I'm sure she probably got a thrashing for it because that's the kind of household she lives in. But I feel like her brother and father have just smothered this side of her. I think she's really curious about the world in general and how it works because she's been so sheltered her whole life. And Ian is the embodiment of that curiosity. He is somebody who has been out in the world and experienced all of these different things. He can share that with her. Like She can live vicariously through him. And especially in that last conversation that they have in the episode where she's talking to Ian about who his family is and he is talking to her about, well, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to stick around or not, but I'll always have a home here with Uncle Jamie. Malva is very subtly sussing him out, finding out what his future holds, if he can support a wife and a family, if he has any means in the world of getting by. And I honestly think that at this point in the story, she is considering him as a potential path forward. I think that they're kind of drawn to each other for unexplainable reasons. And it's a very interesting connection. I don't think at this point in time, Malva knows about her pregnancy. I think what she's doing here, she's doing for herself. And I think that's the difference in the character that we see between this episode and the rest of the season is that this is very much her looking for a future in someone or something. We do learn quite a bit about Malva in this episode for the very reason that we have more scenes with her in it, we have scenes with Tom in it, and we kind of start to put the pieces together on who this Christie family is. The only one that remains quite a bit of a question mark is Alan, and I don't think that that changes at all through the season, honestly. I think that he's even a question mark as of the season six finale. So hopefully they do a good job of clearing that up in the beginning of season seven. But as far as Malva's concerned, we learned some key details about her. So when Malva is walking with Ian back to the Fisherfolk village area, Ian's like, well, I have a hard time believing that you've done anything that could put your soul in peril. And she makes it understood that he's jumping to that conclusion very quickly. He doesn't know her. So I think that can be construed as her being playful, but should also be a bit of an alarm bell for him. And then she says something that really catches him off guard when she admits that her mother was hung as a witch. Now, remember back to the season six premiere when Jamie mentions to Claire that Tom got word of his wife dying when they were at Ardsmuir. So nobody has 100% of the details on this, but we as the watchers of the show can begin to piece this picture together. Jamie and Claire are having a conversation in their bedroom where Claire is kind of puzzling out how Malva fits into the equation because Malva is approximately 18 years of age when this takes place, which would mean that she was conceived while Tom was still in prison. And Jamie says, well, maybe Tom remarried shortly after he got to the colonies and that's when she was born. But that doesn't match up with what she tells Jamie later in that her and Alan have the same mother and that she was born in Scotland. So what we're gathering from this is that Malva is not Tom's daughter. 
She's Alan's sister, but not Tom's daughter. And now Tom is responsible for her. We also know that her mother was hung as a witch, which bleeds nicely into the conversation that Tom and Claire have while he's recovering from his surgery. When Claire asks him if he believes in witches, she says, you know, they're in the Bible. And he said, I didn't say I didn't believe in witches. I said, I don't think that you are one. So it's all very interesting at this point. We don't have any confirmed information, but we're starting to put the pieces together on this very strange little Christie family that we've got. I think that we will get answers in season seven. So if you guys are like, well, that thread just got left dangling, you will, I think, understand within the first couple episodes of season seven, what is going on with all of that. Tom Christie came with the Fisher folk, but he's different. He's still staunchly Protestant and has very clear cut views on what is considered right and wrong, what's considered a sin and what is not. But those beliefs that Tom has don't really match up with the Fisher folk. And I think that all boils down to his education. He's been out in the world and he knows a thing or two. And I think with the Fisher folk, the problem that we're running into is that they don't have a lot of life experience. And so they only know what's been passed down to them through the generations as far as mythology and spiritual belief. Of course, you didn't have the added value of science back then. Science wasn't general knowledge. Yeah, you had a few surgeons that knew how the human body functioned a little bit, but trying to explain something like dwarfism in a young baby was much easier to explain as a deformity caused by the corruption of the parents or as Fergus believes, Henri Christian was beaten in the womb. It was much easier to explain it that way than to develop the idea of genetics and genetic mutations. So when we get the young boys throwing Henri Christian in the river, I think what that really is saying more than anything is how impressionable children are. We get the Fisher folk passing on their beliefs to their children. And I think Roger and Jamie both do a good job of impressing upon these boys that what they believe isn't necessarily true. I think that is an underlying theme for this episode because we see Tom learning the same thing over the course of his arc in this episode as well. The hand surgery and the corresponding scenes with the hand surgery are a huge piece of this puzzle. We also, by extension, get a small view into how Tom and Jamie's relationship works as well. I think that Jamie confuses Tom a lot. His actions don't always make sense to Tom. Tom just really doesn't understand that somebody can do something out of the kindness of their heart. I think he's been conditioned to believe that everybody does something for a reason because when Claire mentions, well, I think he was just doing it as a simple act of kindness like any Christian would, (laughs) wouldn't you? And Tom's like, well, Yeah, it just never crossed his mind that Jamie might actually be a good person. He's got this perception, I think, of who he thinks Jamie is versus who Jamie actually is. And a lot of Tom's journey throughout the season is trying to mesh those two men together to make the person that we actually have in Jamie Fraser. 
the hand surgery scene was really good on everybody's parts. Katrina, Sam, and Mark all did a great job. Tom refuses to use the ether. This just confounds Claire. Like, why on earth would you willingly put yourself through the pain of a hand surgery if you didn't have to? And Jamie tries to talk Tom into it. He's like, look, Claire's done surgery on my hand and that was not pleasant. And if I could have been put to sleep for it, you bet your ass I would have been. So just take the ether. All this is really doing is acting as reverse psychology for Tom because the more Jamie tries to get Tom to do something, the more Tom's going to dig his feet in. In Tom being conscious for this whole ordeal, we get to see A, how deep his faith runs that he's taking comfort in scripture. I mean, we know that he's a super religious guy, but I think that that just adds a whole other level to it when he's like, no, I don't want something to bite down. I want to be able to say my scripture or say my prayers. And Claire just kind of rolls her eyes and is like, okay. And Jamie just looks at her over the back of Tom's head and is like, mm-hmm. see, I told you this guy was crazy. <laughs> Sam said that when they were filming this scene, this was actually one of the most frustrating scenes that they had to film because he could not for the life of him remember all of the scripture that they had to quote in this scene. (laughs) So I'm sure they had to film it like a million times. But I actually thought it was really good. And there was something so subtle in the way that Jamie lays his hand on Tom's shoulder. It's not something that's a forceful grab. It reminds me of laying hands on somebody when you go to a church as you pray for them to kind of heal them and help connect with them spiritually. That's what I think the intent behind that was because Jamie is reading scripture to Tom and hoping that that spiritual well that Jamie has and the almost magic of the written word of God flowing through Jamie into Tom to give him some peace and healing and comfort. But also, I think Jamie has the hand on Tom's shoulder just as a gentle reminder not to move. He doesn't have to have too strong of a grip on him. I think that having his hand on Tom's shoulder is enough that he can kind of keep the pulse on Tom's behavior without being forceful with it. So I love that very subtle motion on Jamie's part. But I also liked how that scene ended They are quoting, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures, that whole quote. And then Claire ends it as she cuts the final suture and said, surely mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. For her to quote that was absolutely perfect because as a healer, mercy is her first and only motivation in life. She would heal somebody no matter what. And we saw that in the season five finale with Lionel. It cost her everything she had to help him. But in the end, she was going to do it before Marceline killed him because that was her calling. That's who she is. So I loved that Claire was the one to quote that final line of that prayer or passage or whatever it is. There are quite a few other scenes between Tom and Claire throughout the rest of the episode. The scene where Claire goes in to check on Tom the night of the surgery is a very interesting one. There's a connection that happens between Tom and Claire in this scene 
that really sparks some interest in me as a viewer, I guess. They have a broad discussion about a lot of different topics. It starts out, Tom makes a comment about Claire's hair and he says, why do you never wear a proper kerchief cap? And she looks at him and says, why should I? He says, because every pious married woman should and every woman who prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head for that is just as if she were shaven. Claire says, oh, we're back to St. Paul again. Did it ever occur to you that that man had quite the bee in his bonnet about women? (laughs) Tom does love to quote his letters from St. Paul. And, you know, it's not something that I ever really heard growing up because I think St. Paul's thoughts on women are not really a modern take and people don't really quote them or rely on his word as much as they did when reading over scripture. It is very interesting that Tom references this quote with Claire and he's talking about her hair because when we come back around to this topic towards the end of the season in episode six, after Claire gets sick and has to have her head shaven, I just thought when I heard this line, I was like, oh my God, if that's not foreshadowing, I don't know what is. And Claire references this conversation whenever she goes to check up on Tom in the sixth episode. So I thought that that was really cool that it was kind of a full circle moment for me. I think Claire in general just throws Tom for a loop. He's not used to the type of woman that Claire is. And I think he's drawn to that, but he doesn't like being drawn to that. It makes him feel very uncomfortable. So much so that Claire can't even really look at his hand and do the things that she needs to do with his hand without him giving off super weird vibes. And she realizes that and she's very professional and very clinical about what she's doing with his hand, but she can tell he still doesn't like it. He still feels very weird about a woman touching him in a way that he kind of views as intimate when you're talking about his bodily function in any sort of way. But you can also see him becoming more and more comfortable with her as the episode goes on to the point where a week later, when Tom comes to have his hand checked out, they actually have conversation about something that is completely not related to his hand at all. It really does show a growth in the relationship and Tom is forming a respect for Claire that I don't think he ever really anticipated. Honestly, he was just as shocked as anybody would be when he found out that the surgery actually worked and that he's going to have full use of his hand again. I don't think he really believed that it would work, but he at least wanted to try. And now that he knows that Claire actually does know what she's talking about and she is educated and does have valid opinions about things, he actually does enjoy talking to her and conversing with her and having educated discussions about things. And so the conversation that Claire and Tom have about Ardsmere and works of fiction was really fascinating for me as a viewer because you're really seeing Tom start to open up and be sociable. That's not a version of Tom Christie that you really get with any other character. You do get a little bit of that kind of behavior between Tom and Roger, but even then, it's not really heavy. You see that Tom does behave differently with Claire than everyone else. The idea of Tom 
appreciating works of fiction, that's not something that he's always appreciated. In fact, he's in the past viewed books as an inducement to idleness, as he put it, and fiction as wicked fancy. When that all changed was when they were at Ardsmere and they were in such terrible circumstances that they needed distraction of some sort to kind of get outside of their situation. And he said something that he thought was so impressive about a fictional world is that no matter what those prisoners were going through, they had the comfort of knowing that they had never suffered the horrors and vicissitudes that the people they were hearing about were suffering. And that was all thanks to Jamie. They didn't have books in Ardsmere, but they had Jamie. And Jamie is very well read. And he was able to recount some of these stories that he had heard, which all goes back to the Highland culture of storytelling. That's a very time-honored tradition in the Scottish Highlands that's actually transferred over to the culture of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Jamie may not remember an entire book's story, but he can give them the Cliff Notes version and take them away to this land of fiction even for a little bit to give them a break from the starvation and the cold and the covered in sores and suffering from malnutrition and exhaustion and just let them experience this other story and be someone else for a little bit. And so Tom really learned to appreciate that kind of thing when he was in prison. And I think what that tells us about Tom is that while he may be a very rigid person, he is willing to accept change under the right circumstances. However, when Claire gives him Tom Jones to read, I think that was probably the worst book that Claire could have given Tom to read. It's a book about desire, about love. And for someone who is very insecure in their own life for reasons that haven't yet really been explained. The idea of intimacy to Tom is a very foreign concept. It's something that he does not like to talk about. And to be confronted by that in a work of fiction, I think gets a little too real for him. And he doesn't like to think about the things that this book is making him think about. Also, I don't think he finds it entirely appropriate that a woman is reading about these things in a leisurely manner. And so that's why he gives her the note that says, this is filth, I thought better of you. Which I think is just him hiding behind his beliefs. And I think that is Tom Christie to a T, that he's a lot more sensitive understanding and kind-hearted than he appears to be, but he likes to hide behind this cold exterior because it's more comfortable for him. Tom has suffered a lot in his life, and like I said, it hasn't really been explained, but it's easier for him to be this cold-hearted and shut-off individual than it is for him to accept that there are good people in the world and there are good things in the world and you can find joy and happiness and love. So, you know, maybe this is me hoping that Tom finds that in his life. <laughs> but it, he is a fascinating character, really is. I would encourage you to read the books if you have not read the books, because he's definitely expanded upon more in the books. One of the major things that's brought up in this episode is the idea of sin. I almost would go as far as to say that it's a theme. Most of our characters are dealing with their past sins, 
past sins that have been committed, sins that people may commit. All of these things are kind of weaving in and out of the storyline in this episode. We've got the Fisher folk believing that by Fergus being so deep in drink and sinning that that has caused Henri Christian's deformities. You've got Tom Christie blaming the sins of Malva's mother on Malva. And I think that that is part of the reason that he treats Malva the way that he does is that he's afraid that she's going to end up like her mother. We've got Marsley confronting her own past sins in murdering Lionel Brown, saying that she doesn't really regret that decision, but she still kind of admits to it. We've got Ian saying that he's done much in his life, much that he's proud of and much that he regrets. So all of these things kind of weaving in and out of the story, meshing together to form this underlying current of sin and how that impacts your life and your spirituality. Another thing that we get in this episode that I think is the primary force behind all of these storylines in this episode is fear of the unknown. The obvious one that you point out right out of the gate is the people of the Ridge is fear of Henri Christian because he's so different. And I think that's what propels all the actions that are taken toward this little baby, having him being almost drowned by all of these young boys because they're just ignorant. They don't know any better. It's not malicious, but they're afraid of him. But at the same time, they're curious about him. I think that's something that Jamie confronts. He doesn't beat around the bush about it. Whenever he goes to give these boys their punishment, he gives them a choice. He says, you're growing men and you need to learn by doing. So touch the poker or touch the baby. This gives the boys a chance to confront their own curiosity in a way. They can touch the poker and definitely be burned or they can touch the baby and maybe be burned because he's still a question mark. They're believing what their parents are telling them at this point in time, but they're not 100% sure about it. And they touch the baby and they find out that he's actually just a baby. He's not a demon and he's not going to hurt them. Like I said, I think that was brilliant on Jamie's part because it really did give them kind of an opportunity to allay some of their fears and he's no longer unknown to them. While they may not fully embrace this new little baby, at least they're not scared of him anymore. Another major fear of the unknown is what's going to happen to Henri Christian in the future. And I think this largely propels Fergus's story in this episode. Fergus has already been struggling. We've seen it for the past couple of episodes. Something's really been haunting him. And we know from what we saw in Allegiance that he blames himself for what happened to Marsley and he feels like he should have been there to protect her. And that that has kind of extended into blame over Henri Christian's dwarfism. There are some really great scenes between Fergus and other members of the cast that really broaden Fergus's character, get us into his head, give Cesar opportunity for some fantastic acting. I was so impressed with him this episode. And it gives his co-stars opportunities as well. The first scene is the one with Claire. This scene was actually Cesar's audition scene. And Cesar was so excited for us to see it. So excited. And I can see why. It was fantastic. They're talking about Fergus's 
past. And it's something that we never really got into in the show. I mean, we know he comes from a brothel and we know that at one point in time he was a child prostitute, but he explains to Claire kind of some of the things that he went through in the brothel. It was such a beautiful conversation. He explains that part of the reason that he's feeling the way that he is is because he knows what the life of a dwarf can look like. When he was younger, he knew a dwarf and they would pick pockets together. And one day he found him out in the alley with his throat slit. The madam of the brothel summoned basically body snatchers who sold him to a physician and cut him up into parts to sell for divination. Like that's so horrible. And imagine going through something like that at like eight years old, which is how old Fergus was when Jamie and Claire found him. Not only are you looking at the scars of a child that survived by pickpocketing and prostitution that's grown into adulthood, but you're also like those scars don't go away over time. They're always with you. Fergus tells Claire, when I met you and me, Lord, I found a world beyond a brothel and vowed never to return to such a place that my son might find himself in such a life. That's beyond horrible, guys. I can understand why Fergus is so upset. And, you know, Claire says, of course, me and Jamie would never let something like that happen. And Fergus is like, yeah, I understand that. But you and me, Lord, are not going to live forever. Neither am I. So who takes care of him? Who protects him when we're gone? You would hope that his siblings would take care of him and protect him and his family would be there for him, even if Fergus and Marsley and Jamie and Claire were gone. But you don't know. And then at the same time, you've got the very parent side of things that just want him to have a normal life. They want him to grow up and have a wife and children and be able to provide for his family. Fergus already feels this way, that because he only has one hand, he can't do a lot of the things that a man would do to provide for his family in the 18th century. So he's already feeling useless and helpless. And then to know that he has a son that could potentially be facing the same thing 20 years from now, that hits him in the worst place possible because not only is he struggling with these feelings, but now he is projecting those feelings onto something that his child is going to experience in his lifetime as well. And so that really sends him to a dark place that he has a hard time coming back from. And so this drives him to start drinking again. He promised Marsley he would stop drinking, but drinking is really the only way that Fergus has found to be able to somewhat cope with his pain and his trauma. For Marsley, that's probably the worst thing that he could have done because Marsley has dealt with domestic abuse situations before her father, father or stepfather, they don't specify which one. I'm guessing her stepfather because Marsley's older, Marsley's father passed away and Joan was also a victim of domestic abuse. So I'm guessing it was Joan's father that was abusive, unless Joan and Marsley have the same father. But I didn't think that they did. I'm not sure, honestly. They could have the same father. And if that's the case, it was Leary's second husband. Anyway, not important. Sidetracked. Back on track. So Marsley has dealt with domestic abuse situations before. Her stepfather or father was extremely physically abusive, beating Marsley and Joan along with Leary relentlessly because he was so deep in drink. Marsley is refusing to live that kind of life again. This is such 
a powerful scene. It's one of my favorite scenes of season six, guys. Like, it gives me chills every time I see it because I think Lauren was so amazing in this scene. Oh, she deserves an Emmy for this. And she didn't even get nominated. And it just breaks my heart. Marsley married Fergus for love. And for the past however many years of their marriage, they've been so happy and in love. They've shared the burden of providing for their families. That's something that we saw in season four in Wilmington was them sharing the load and helping each other and leaning on each other and having this equality in their relationship. And After the events of season five, that just shattered and Fergus really turned inward and really started to blame himself and think of himself as less of a man than he's been previously, even though nothing's really changed except for Marsley was attacked and he wasn't there to protect her. And I understand that he would feel some guilt over that, but it really just shifted the entire dynamic of their relationship. Fergus and Marsley were happy for a long time. And I think Marsley had this idea that she was marrying for love and she absolutely knew who Fergus was as an individual and that she would always be able to count on him. And all of a sudden, things are drastically different from how they've always been. And this is not the life that she envisioned for herself. She's in a very dark place, just like Fergus is. What Fergus is refusing to see is that by putting himself in such an emotional state, he's hurting his entire family. He's not just hurting himself. Maybe he does see that. Maybe that's part of his struggle there at the end in that final scene is that he sees how much of a burden emotionally and physically he is on his family, or so he thinks. And he thinks that it's not worth it anymore. But, you know, Marsley tries so hard to be gentle with him and say, you're so much better than this. Tell me what I can do to help you. He says, you can't help me. I don't need a woman to protect me. I'm just wondering where that's coming from. Like, where is this coming from in Fergus's character? Because this is not a side of him we've ever seen. Granted, it's probably a lot closer to book Fergus, but It's not somebody that we've seen on the screen thus far. So it does give me some questions as a viewer, but as the argument escalates between them and Marsley reveals that she's the one that killed Lionel Brown, Fergus is shell-shocked by that. I think Marsley 100% means it to be a comfort to Fergus. She wants him to understand that she can fight for them too. It, It doesn't all fall on him, like she says. But Fergus isn't willing to take it like that. He isn't willing to change his tune because he 100% feels like it's a man's responsibility to protect his family. So by Marsley telling him that she took the reins and she took this man's life and she doesn't feel guilty about it at all because he was a terrible person, that just gives Fergus more fuel for feeling like even less of a man than he already felt like because here his wife is protecting the family for him, doing his job for him. He says, I need another drink. When Marsley pours the pitcher of beer over his head and tells him to leave. Oh, oh my God. Oh, Lauren Lyle, man. When she yells at him, you promised me, Fergus Fraser, and I'll have a whole man or none at all. And she's got tears running down her cheeks as Fergus walks out. Mm, guys. 
Oh, man, she's so good. And I felt so terrible for Marsley in that moment. And she doesn't mean I'll have a whole man or none at all, as in you're missing a hand, so go fly a kite. That's not what she means. Obviously, she knew getting into this marriage that that's what she was in for. What she means is I need you to be 100% emotionally present with me. I need you so we can get through this together. And if you're not the best version of yourself, then I'm not the best version of myself and neither one of us can handle what we're going through alone. We need each other. Our kids need us. And if you can't be the man that I married, take a hike. That takes such immense strength from a character, from a woman. I admire Marsley's character so much for this scene honestly. So that leads Fergus to a really dark place. There are a couple of other things that happen in between, but by the end of this episode, Fergus is prepared to take his own life. He witnesses the conversation between Marsley and Evan Lindsay about marriage. He sees that Evan Lindsay is looking for a wife and he sees him and how much money he's giving Jamie because his farm has been so successful and he's just thinking to himself, you know, if I just go off myself, Marsley can marry a man like that and my family really would be protected and cared for. That's the catalyst right there. That and the fact that somebody tells him to his face that his son is grotesque and that it's his fault. Oh my God. Like that woman, I hope somebody slapped that woman. How could somebody be that brazen and rude and just downright cold hearted to tell someone that their child is grotesque? So Fergus goes to take his own life and Jamie witnesses this. He's coming back from fishing and he sees Fergus walking alone in the woods and that is not at all a normal thing. Something in the back of his head tells him, follow him, go after him. Fergus was actually going to cut his wrists and lay down in the creek and let himself bleed to death and take himself out of the equation. You know, there are moments in a series where a scene could take place between a couple of different people, but I really feel like it had to be Jamie that found Fergus. There are so many points in Jamie's life where he's felt like he was a rock bottom, that he would rather die than carry on because he views himself as less of a man. We saw one of those moments in season five when he would rather die than lose his leg because he felt like he wouldn't be capable enough to take care of his family. One of those moments was at the end of season one after he was raped by Blackjack Randall. And he felt like because of what happened, he couldn't be the man that Claire needed him to be and almost starved himself to death. That kind of thing is something that Jamie's unfortunately familiar with those feelings. He understands more than anyone what Fergus is going through. This is one of those things where if you'll remember back to Monsters and Heroes when Ian says, I never thought I would be ashamed of you, uncle, because of Jamie's actions. That woke Jamie up to understanding it doesn't matter what you can do or give or provide like he tells Fergus. And this is actually a line from Claire in the books because this scene is very different in the books. We actually don't get the scene in the book. We hear about it secondhand. I'm so glad that we actually got the scene in the show. It's one of those that I feel like you really just needed to see. But it's a line from Claire whenever Jamie's telling her what happened to Fergus. But at the end of that scene, Jamie says a few words in French, and I didn't know what they meant, so I asked somebody. He says, do you understand, my child? 
my son. Then Fergus says, I'm not the man I once was, and I don't know if I can be him again. And Jamie says, you can and you will. It reminded me so much of the scene in season three after Fergus loses his hand. Jamie has been very shut off and isolated from the world because he's grieving over Claire. It was in the episode Surrender. When Jamie goes up to visit Fergus, Fergus kind of broke the floodgates open for Jamie in a way and made him realize that he still had something worth fighting for. That kind of reciprocity in their relationship has really gotten them through some dark times in their lives. So we saw Fergus give Jamie his agency back and make him realize that he still had a purpose. And to see that three seasons later reversed and see Jamie give that back to Fergus and that he still has a purpose in life and his family needs him is so beautiful to see. So that whenever, after the scene, when Fergus returns home, he's escorted by Jamie and Claire, his mom and his dad, and they're really there as his support system to be like, it's gonna be okay and we're here for you. And to see them giving their son back to Marsley and his family was so beautiful. I think seeing Fergus take a hold of his son and hold him and smile and kind of touch heads with Marsley was every bit of closure that we needed to step away from this storyline. Because when we saw Fergus at the end of Allegiance, he was holding Henri Christian and he was so horrified by the reality in front of him that he gave him back to Claire and he ran. And that was the last we saw of him. Ian's words to Marsley were, believe me, cousin, your husband grieves, but he'll return. And he did. It took a whole episode and a hell of a lot of angst but he did eventually come back to her and come back to their family. And I thought that was a really great journey for him. One thing that I absolutely loved about this episode, and it was just a small thing, but it was such a gratifying thing, was seeing Jamie as a grandfather. It's not something that we really see a lot in this series, but we got such a sweet moment between him and Jermaine it melts my heart. Sam was so good with little Robin and they had such a good moment. You know, that's a very integral part of who Jamie is, is a father and a grandfather. And we saw both of those come out in him in this episode. When Jamie kneels down in front of Jermaine and he says, Henri Christian also belongs to you, Jermaine. He's your wee brother. He needs your protection. You understand? Jamie imparting this to Jermaine, I think, has a very important significance because it's not just Fergus and Marsley that are going to protect Henri Christian. It's his siblings. And Jermaine, as his older brother, is key to that relationship. And we see that going forward in the series that Jermaine takes his protection of his little brother very seriously. And it is almost a callback to Jamie and Willie's relationship, his brother Willie, and how Willie was always there watching over Jamie, watching his back. In some ways, Jamie still feels his spirit around him, that protective energy. And that's what Jamie wants Jermaine to be for Henri Christian. So that's really what he's imparting in this conversation. But we also get the scene right after the river scene when they're all standing in Marceline and Fergus's cabin. They find out that Henri Christian's okay and everything, and they're all kind of standing around Fergus's distraught, and he's just standing in the corner 
Marsily is furious and in mama bear mode. She was like, what were you thinking? I turned my back for five seconds and going on a rant. And little Jermaine's just like, I just wanted them to leave us alone. (laughs) I felt so bad. I mean, this little boy is probably like six, maybe the poor guy. You know, he's just getting all kinds of hell from all the Fisher folk boys. And he just wants to be left alone. You see... Jamie and Claire look at their little grandson and they are so sympathetic and you just know that they would stand up for him in a heartbeat. Like they feel really awful. And I just, I wrote in my notes, Jamie and Claire are such grandparents. Their grandkids have them twisted around their little fingers. It's actually really adorable and I hope we get more of it as this series progresses. Roger has an expanding role in this season as well, and I think that that is affirmed in this episode. We start out with him saving Henri Christian from a terrible drowning that would have devastated everyone. And from there, we really see how he's integrated into the family, especially in the scene in the cabin that I was just talking about, where I was talking about Jamie and Claire having sympathy for Jermaine. But Roger is the one that is kind of playing mediator between everybody, explaining what happened and why the boys acted the way that they did. He's the one that saved Henri Christian. And you really see how he's assimilated into this family. He's a brother. He's an uncle. He's a son. The familiarity of in which he talks with everybody really gave me the impression that he's been 100% accepted into the Fraser clan. The only thing that I wondered about that scene was, where the hell is Brianna? (laughs) I don't know where she's at. Evidently building a spinning wheel or something. But Roger's also developing into the minister of the ridge. And he's not technically a minister yet, but you can very much see how that is forming in this process. And he's forming a bond with the fisher folk and all the Protestants on the ridge and really creating the bridge between the gap for the Frasers and the fisher folk and being a mediator of sorts. So my favorite part of the storyline for Roger, like this entire episode, was the voiceover at the end when he's actually giving the message to the congregation. This, in my opinion, is one of the best, if not the best, voiceover in the entire series of Outlander because everything that is being alluded to in this voiceover is happening on the screen. It's not some foreign concept or loose interpretation, getting too creative and having to break it down into a science. What Roger is talking about can be openly applied to what's on the screen. This voiceover says, As we all settle in this new land, so far from the soil in which many of us were born, I want to reflect on the words, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I feel compelled to tell a story about a helpless child who was floated down a river in a basket. Now, at this point in the voiceover, it's still actually the scene of the message and all the little boys, you know, who Roger swore their parents wouldn't find out about what they did type thing. They're like, oh, my God, he's being compelled by God to confess in front of the whole congregation that we put Henri Christian in the river. You can see the horror in their eyes. And Aiden looks back at Amy and she's like, pay attention. Roger walks up in front of the boys, knowing that's what they're thinking, and continues his message and says, his name was Moses. Pharaoh ordered that all Hebrew boys be thrown into the Nile and drowned, an edict that nearly killed the child that would later lead God's people to freedom. 
It was fear that made him do it. We see Tom beating Malva once again. His hand is all healed up and he's belting her. The idea that it was fear that made him do it is the words that come over tells me everything we need to know. That 100% confirms that Tom believed Malva's mother was a witch and he's trying to beat out the last bit of evil in this girl, making sure she's on the right path, doesn't want her to take a step out of line. It's fear that is driving him to do this. He almost feels compelled to do it. The voiceover continues, For months, Moses' mother kept him hidden, risking her own life until he was too big to hide. This is images of Marsily and likening Henri Christian to Moses once again. And then it says, She placed him in a basket in the River Nile and prayed. She entrusted him to God in spite of her fear. Many of you are parents. To what lengths would you go to protect your innocent children? You never know what you'll be willing to do until. So the scene that's playing underneath many of you are parents, to what lengths would you go to to protect your innocent children, is when we get two different parents in two desperate situations. We get Jamie watching Fergus, who's trying to take his own life to protect his son. And so you've got Fergus who's trying to take his life to protect Henri Christian, and you've got Jamie that's trying to preserve Fergus's life because it's his son, and he loves him, and he cares about him. And so you've got two different fathers that are willing to take two very drastic actions to remedy the situation. You never know what you're willing to do until, and then this scene ensues. It was so wonderfully shot, so wonderfully edited, so beautifully written. I think that about wraps up my thoughts on the episode. Quote of the episode was a Roger quote from the very beginning of this episode. When he baptizes Henri Christian, he says, you hear that? His name's Christian. He belongs to the Lord. You trouble him again and Satan will pop up and drag you straight down screaming to hell. (laughs) Because that is the Roger that we all know and love from the book series. He is a protective father. He is fierce and loyal and doesn't mind giving people hell if they threaten his family. And so I loved, loved, loved seeing that from Roger in this scene. Performance the episode goes to Cesar Donboy because like I've said a million times throughout this podcast, I think he was fan-freaking-tastic. Like, phenomenal. I was so, so happy with his performance. Alrighty, well... That about wraps up what I had to say about 603 Temperance, but as always, I opened it up to you guys to let me know what you thought on this episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Angela Hickey says, this was one of my favorites of the season. Roger in serious heroic form, very welcome. And every single moment the Fergus was on screen was an acting triumph. I'm so glad he got his chance to show off his acting chops. He was incredibly gifted and showed so many colors to his acting. Even scenes where he barely said a word were spectacular work by him. Also, I was so grateful to see the show stay true to the book and so much of this episode. Great transition near the end to the next episode with the conversation of Ian and Malva. According to Jessica, she realizes she's pregnant between last up and this one. So she's definitely scrambling for a plan, testing to see if Ian would make a good out. But it's really his words that set up his story for the next episode. Note the symbolism of the river for this whole season, but especially bookending this episode. Huh, that's interesting. So Jessica said that Malva finds out she's pregnant between 602 and 603. 
I thought for sure that she would find out that she was pregnant, maybe at the end of this episode, like between this episode and the next episode, that would 100% make sense to me. I just didn't really see that in the way that her character is portrayed in this episode. But I mean, if that's what Jessica said, and that's what she's basing it on, that's interesting. Lara Hillman Turner says, and sometimes I think people make mistakes and do the wrong things, but perhaps for the right reasons. Malva talking to Ian while they both work in the reeds. This scene is beautifully shot with the sunlight dancing on the reeds and Malva's hair. These two young people getting to know one another is curious, flirtatious, and innocent all at the same time. I enjoy watching these two interact. Ian has someone to talk to. They both seem to need someone and they have found a sort of kinship. Also, Rolo was back in this episode. Yes, he was. I was so happy to see little Rolo. I thought that Ian and Malva's interactions in this episode were very innocent as well, Laura, so I'm glad that you saw that. Like, they were genuinely drawn to each other, and I did see Malva kind of prodding Ian for details on his life, but I didn't really see that as her trying to find an out with Ian. I just generally felt like she was curious about him. Last comment of the day is from Becky Hartwell. She says, I think Roger is gradually progressing into the new role on the ridge really well. You can tell he's finding his purpose. He's not just Jamie's son-in-law or Brianna's husband. He has his new role with its own responsibilities. I would have been really disappointed if they left out Tom's surgery or didn't do it justice. I think it really shows the relationship between Tom and Jamie and the back and forth they have. Regardless of the feelings they have toward one another, Jamie understands the pain and suffering Tom is enduring with the hand surgery, and at the end of the day, he is layered and he's there for his tenants, even if he drives him nuts. The banter can be really funny, and I definitely enjoy it. I also feel like poor Claire is dealing with two schoolboys in the playground bickering over who's the tougher one. Yeah, I definitely got the feeling in the like pre-surgery interlude that it was that song, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. <laughs> That's exactly exactly what I thought whenever <laughs> I heard their argument. Like I said, I think it was total reverse psychology. I think if anything, Jamie's argument that Tom should take the ether was complete motivation for Tom to not take the ether. I definitely get that vibe off of them, but at the same time, you can tell that they both do really respect each other. It's such an interesting dynamic, and I love that when Jamie's talking to Malva at the end of the episode, and uh, she says, oh, sir, please don't tell my father that, you know, men are swooning after her. And he says, is he that fierce then? She's like, I thought you knew him. And he replies, I did. I'm getting acquainted with him again. It's just one of those things where he's like, I'm trying to understand who this man is. And I thought I almost had him figured out, but there's something a little bit different about him. It's just a really cute discussion between Jamie and Malva that really underscores the tension between Jamie and Tom as characters. Alrighty, guys. Well, that sums up 603 in a nutshell. Make sure to join me next week for 604 Hour of the Wolf. That will be my mid-season finale. And then the following week, I will be doing a live discussion on TSF Obsassnacks on the second book in the Celtic Brooch series by Catherine Lowry Logan called The Last McLenna. If you want something to read during Droughtlander, make sure you check out those books. I have done a previous Droughtlander book club on the Ruby Brooch, and you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're not a member of TSF Obsassnacks, just head over to Facebook, search TSF Obsassnacks in the search bar. Make sure to answer all three admission questions and agree to follow the rules, and somebody will approve your membership shortly. Hope to see you there in a couple of weeks. That will be August 13th at 4 p.m. 
Eastern time. With all of that, I'm going to sign off for this week. You guys have a fantastic week and I'll chat at you later. Bye. Bye.